Father, what a glorious morning it is to be here. How blessed we are to have Christ Jesus as our covering. Father, we have uh, redemption. We have forgiveness. We have reconciliation with you all because of Christ Jesus. Father, help us this morning as we look uh, to this difficult doctrine of the Trinity, as we study you, Father, Son, and Spirit. I pray that you would help us that you would teach us through your word, that you would remind us through these great men who have through the centuries rightly divided the word of truth. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're, we're going to start with the Bible. And, you know, Tim Pierce doesn't get to talk about this because we, we were talking about it the other night. But open to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. And you guys get to be great theologians this morning. It's an well, it's a, you know, it is a it is a blessing. Verse 36. I haven't even looked to see what my Okay. I like this pretty good. Okay, good notes here in the Reformation study Bible. All right. Matthew twenty four thirty six. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. What day and hour is that? Okay, the second coming. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. Now, there is on YouTube a video of a prominent theologian whose name you would all know. Guess what he says about this verse? Some, he said something I don't like. Well, it's not a question of whether I like it or not. It's a whether it's true or not. The divine son doesn't know. And he goes even further. He says the Holy Spirit doesn't know. Because it says, and he reads the Greek, and which is very impressive, and he says that the Greek says, only the Father knows. What are the problems with that? And here's where you get to be great theologians. What are the problems with that? If they're one, then they all should know what, well, I mean, what are the implications if, for example, what this great theologian said is true? That only the Father knows, that the eternal Son does not know, and the eternal Spirit does not know. Well, they could argue, but I mean, more, more importantly, what does that suggest about the Father? That he keeps secrets from the Son and the Spirit, which, I mean, the implications, implications of that could be pretty vast. Um, you know, the, the Father knows things that the Son doesn't know. The Spirit doesn't know. So the Spirit goes, wow. I had, I had no idea. You know, that's amazing. What does that, I mean, what does that tell us about, you know, the one in essence, the one, you know, the one, I mean, let, let me just be, 
crass about it, crass relatively speaking, does God have three minds? Well, how could the Father only know, and the Son not know, and the Spirit not know? Could that be the incarnate Son that they're talking about, that he's talking about, that Jesus is talking about? You know, the little, the little rectangle attached to our triangle. If you remember uh, consubstantiation, and by the way, just for, by way of review, what is double consubstantiality? Double. That Jesus is of one substance with the Father in his deity, and he's of one substance, that's the con, substantial, and he's of one substance with whom, according to his humanity. Let's get some more coffee. Mary. Mary. Right? Because he's born of virgin. But as I, as I listened to this man explain this the other day, I just thought to myself, this, this is <clears throat> contra everything that we're reading. And it also, you know, like I said, if the son in his deity doesn't know, then we've got some real issues. You know, does the father have some kind of a, uh, I don't know, theological lockbox where there are things that he keeps separate from the the son and the spirit, and they just they they get to find out later, or they get to be as surprised as everybody else, or they get, you, you know, and so let me just read. You know, I mentioned the Reformation study notes had it right. This is what they say uh, for. 2436, no one knows. This remains true, and after his resurrection, Jesus affirms the truth that it is not given to humans to know the times or seasons that have been fixed by the Father. Um, Then they go on to say, nor the Son. Although omniscient with respect to his deity, with respect to his humanity, Jesus' knowledge is both finite and changeable. Mysteriously, his two natures are united in one person, yet their distinctive attributes are not mixed or confused. In other words, Jesus in his humanity does not know the times or seasons, but Jesus in his deity does know. He does know when he's coming back. The Father hasn't kept secrets from him. I just really hated that. So, so if you're on the Internet, you're watching YouTube, and some brilliant man comes on and tells you the wrong thing, you'll go, you know, I don't think that's right. There you have it. Okay. Back to our quiz. And see, people are coming in now, and they have no idea what just happened. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yes, we're on Chapter 4. Do I have any chapter fours? I do, as a matter of fact. If anybody doesn't have a chapter four, please raise your hand. And the man in the lovely flannel plaid Miami Dolphins uh, colors. Uh, sure, it will. <laughs> All right, so we've done one and two. 
And so far, the infallible highlighter has been correct. Number one is true. True or false, collapsing or conflating the imminent trinity with the economic trinity leads to disaster. By the way, if you don't have a list of these terms, if you would like a list of the, the terms that we use often in the class, it even has consubstantial, consubstantiality. If you want one of those, yeah, you may. They're free of charge, no cost or obligation. I don't even give you an SASE to, uh, you know, send a contribution, nothing. So, all right. Uh, imminent trinity, what's the difference between the imminent trinity and the economic trinity? Imminent is who God is. Imminent, as in I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, that's who he is from all eternity. And economic is then what he does in time. Imminent is who he is. Economic, what he does. Okay. Number two. True or false, John the Baptist's attention was directed to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. True. That's John 129 through 34. So that's where we left off last week. And number three. True or false. The experiences, and by the way, if you object to the question, welcome to the club. Uh, the experiences of Abraham, Moses, and Israel point to similar experiences in Jesus' life. I heard true. Any falses? The answer is true. From, uh, from Matthew Barrett, he says Jesus was baptized. This is where he's going through the whole fictional. How many have been reading the book? If you haven't been reading the book, I, I really just really commend it to you. It, you know, I heard someone mention the idea that it's difficult. It's not really the subject matter is difficult. And, you know, sometimes, but like this whole section about uh, Zipporah and or Zipporah, however you say it, and her experience, her fictional experience of watching things develop is actually very helpful. And I liked it. Uh, Jesus was baptized, but unlike me, fictional Zipporah, Zipporah, it was not because he was a sinner. Instead, the Lord himself was baptized for me and for my people. It's as if he was reliving my family history all over again. And she's writing this, obviously, as a Jew. She says, having entered into the waters, would he now, like Israel, go into the wilderness to be tempted? Did he go into the wilderness to be tempted? Yes. He was impelled or sent out by the Holy Spirit. And then, like Moses, ascend God's mountain to teach us how to live in God's kingdom. Did he do that? Sermon on the Mount. Would he succeed where we, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, all children of Abraham, had failed? Yes. In other words, did he keep the law? As the second Adam, as the last Adam, would he succeed? in doing everything that the Father commanded? The answer is yes. So the answer to that was true. Questions, thoughts, complaints? Okay. All complaints, by the way, must be signed in red ink and submitted in triplicate. So, number four, true or false? The scene surrounding the baptism of Jesus refutes the doctrine of the Trinity. The scenes surround. 
Why are you guys laughing? It hurts my feelings. But you know what? Can I, you know, let me just share some, you know, inside the tabernacle secrets with you, with you all. If I read this as a teenager, what do you think I would say? I would say true, right? Why would I say it's true? Because this is exactly the kind of argumentation that Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses engage in to disprove the Trinity. So let's look for a moment at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And, you know, once again, I'm grabbing my Bible, but I don't really need to because I can't paste the verses here so that I don't have to do that. So enough of me acting like I'm going to turn to the right pages because I, I just won't. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness will read that, and why will they say this refutes the doctrine of the Trinity? They see three separate, well, they would say individuals, in three separate locations, and they go, <laughs> that's not one God. It's because they don't really understand the nature of one God in three persons, so... Uh, Barrett says this, unlike all the nations around us, this is still Zipporah talking, and around Israel, uh, nations that believe in many gods, we, Israel, believe in one God. So how can John be right that when the heavens opened, the divine voice itself pronounced its blessing on one who is, in the words of Isaiah, the Lord? Are there two lords now? And not just two, but three for John said, a dove descended on Jesus. Some say this is the Spirit. John swore it must be. You know, how can these things be? Because you have to understand God in three persons. Um, you know, and if you also understand a, an um, uh, omnipotent, what's the word? omnipresent God, then this isn't so difficult. He's everywhere at the same time, which is kind of mind-boggling, but... All right, questions, thoughts? Yes, Corey. On the flip side of heresy, this is probably the most convincing Good. So modalism, you know, we're doing a lot of review here this morning. Modalism is what? The idea that God is either the Father or the Son or the Spirit. That essentially, in fact, you'll sometimes see this on church websites. They'll say, you know, God has three different modes. If you think of it as like uh, gears, right? How many have ever driven a manual uh, transmission? Wow, that's a that's an amazing number. It's good to, good to know if the big one goes down. So, um, 
you know, you're either in, you're either in first gear or second gear or third gear or fourth or fifth or sixth or whatever. You're in one gear at a time, right? So the idea is that, you know, God either exists as the Father, and they would say, you know, that's mostly in the Old Testament, and God mostly exists uh, for a time as Jesus the Son, and now he mostly exists as the Spirit through these three different modes. And that's false, and, you know, as a proof text, this is pretty good, because here you have all three modes appearing in one time, and that would be very confuzzling. For those of you not familiar with that term, my daughter invented that. So, Okay. All right, number five, true or false, Psalm 110 does not refer to Jesus. Well, I guess, you know what, I didn't put this in my notes, so, so let's, let's just see what we think of Psalm 110. I mean, what do you guys, what do you think? <laughs> Woo, that's a pretty bold statement. Them. <laughs> I am the Psalms guy. I write the, I write the Psalms that make the whole world sing. <laughs> All right, Barry. Yeah, for you people older than 60, you've got that joke. All right. (laughs) Psalm 110. I'll just read it because it's short. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. These are familiar words, right? The Lord sends forth from Zion your your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And when you read that, it sure sounds like, uh, you know, the Father often referring to the Son and Jesus. So, again, this is Zipporah, this fictional person that uh, Matthew Barrett uses. And he says, everyone in the crowd knew Jesus was quoting Psalm 110, a psalm recited in synagogue on a frequent basis. But the way Jesus asked about this psalm shed new light. I don't know why I'd never seen these two lords in the text before. I must have recited David's word a thousand times. Yet I never paid attention to the plurality, David assumes, is present in the one God we worship. But Jesus did. Not only that, but Jesus gave the impression that he is one of those lords. David's lord, to be exact. Apparently, David overheard, obviously inspired by the Spirit, a divine conversation between the Father and the Son, in eternity, about the victory the Son promised he would accomplish, a victory Jesus has now come to inaugurate in history. It's as if the Spirit spoke through David as David gave voice to the very person of the Father, addressing his only begotten Son before all time. After all, if I remember Psalm 110 right, the Father goes on to say to his Son, 
Before the dawn-bearing morning star appeared, I begot you. And by the way, we just read that. That wasn't there. Well, where is it? It's in verse 3 of the Septuagint. So, okay, thoughts, questions, concerns? Brian? Okay, there are a lot of things I don't mention, but that's true. Two different words. Just, can I just step away from the podium for a minute? Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, there are two different words there. So there is, an, you know, even in the text, an indication that there are two different persons involved. I, you know, you always have to pause a little bit because, you know, you're always on the tiptoe, not, you know, the tiptoeing up to the edge of not eternity, but heresy. So you, you have to be a little careful. All right, number six, by the way, those, those of you who, you know, came in, I'm very thankful. If you were late, you're probably going to want to check the tape and listen to the first ten minutes because it was fun. Okay, number six, true or false, because there were no systemic theologies or systematic theologies. I don't know why I put systemic. What is that? You know, I, sometimes autocorrect, and I'm, I'm going to blame this on autocorrect, systemic I don't even know what that would mean, systemic theology. Uh, in the early church, some Christians did not believe in the Trinity. I, I, love, I love when I get, when I get Tulse or I get Fru, you know, as a... I think Mark is on to something accidentally. Uh, sorry, sorry. Strike that from the tape. Uh, no, that's that. That is that's that was the trick in the question, right? Can you be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity? See, now we're getting into something here. This is good. I can hardly, I, I wish I was going to be in the car with them on the way home. Uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty good, right? You're not a Christian if you deny the Trinity. Um, you know, if you don't comprehend it, can you be a Christian? You know, I've told, I've told you all before, some of you may not have heard this, but, you know, coming out of a Mormon background, when I come to realize who Jesus is, I'm like, yes, I get it. I understand, finally. You know, he's not a created being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm like, I still don't know about this Trinity thing. He didn't have time. The thief on the cross didn't have time to study systematic theology. But, you know, while he was in purgatory, he did. So, <laughs> Andrew. Yes. Okay. Except it doesn't say, you know, you must fully comprehend the Trinity. It just says, believe in the Trinity. Okay. 
Oh, the sacred highlighter. <laughs> you know, it's a relic. You get points out. Uh, you know, you get, uh, what, what are those things called? The, the Pope gives, uh, what, what, yeah, that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, with regard to the thief on the cross, I, I think that's a valid point. You know, didn't have time to do a whole lot of systematic study of Scripture or anything else. But I, I think, you know, the key really is um, if, it's presented to you and you reject it, then, then we have an issue. Uh, if you don't really understand it, well, okay. It's like everybody before this class, right? <laughs> I think I need a wrist rocket. Maybe just a pea shooter. I don't know. A squirt gun. <laughs> um, Barrett. He says, for the first century believer to become a Christian was to embrace the salvation given and accomplished by none other than the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To gain access to the throne of grace, one had to come to the Father by believing in his only begotten Son, for that only happened if the Holy Spirit opened one's blind eyes to the Son's saving resurrection life. If we just think even, you know, going back to John 3, and we think about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night and he says, you know, you must be born again. Well, why? Because some things aren't going to make any sense to you until the Holy Spirit causes you to believe. And this is, this is, you know, admittedly a difficult doctrine as, you know, evidenced by the first 10 minutes of this class this morning where, you know, somebody who's brilliant in many, many ways would say something bizarre like he did. Um, so it is difficult, but I, I think, you know, the lack of systemic or systematic theologies in the early church have nothing to do with it. Once people became aware that Jesus Christ was God and that he pointed to the Father, you know, he said, I do everything that the Father sent me to here to do. I do the works that I see him doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then those folks understood that there were two beings who were God and they also understood, because of the way Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was God. So that, you know, there was no question about that. Did they use the word Trinity? No. That's not really ultimately the point. Okay. And Barrett concludes with this. For these early Christians to believe the gospel was to believe that the one God of Israel was triune. Anything less was not, simply was not Christian. A gospel that was not Trinitarian was no gospel at all. And if we just consider, you know, um, like Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, where Paul bursts out in praise. And what does he do? He basically prays a Trinitarian, what? A, a Trinitarian prayer. I'm getting quizzical looks. Uh, a Trinitarian prayer to the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, thanking them, uh, them for the plan of salvation. So, all right. Number seven, and this whole question is wrecked already. True or false, the doctrine of the Trinity is not related to the gospel. That's false. Sometimes we treat the Trinity like rationalists, as if the Trinity were some cognitive riddle to be cracked, a divine Rubik's Cube 
fitting together random biblical texts until we come up with a magical mathematical formula. And I, I want to pause there just for a minute because if we think about how we study the Trinity t- typically, even as I've taught it in uh, Fundamentals of the Faith, how do we understand the Trinity? We prove that the Father is God, then we prove that Jesus is God, then we prove that the Holy Spirit is God, and therefore, you know, one plus one plus one equals one, and therefore we have the Trinity. That's kind of how we do it. And that's what he's referencing here when he says it's kind of like a divine Rubik's Cube. You just sort of arrange things and you go, here we go. Um, at other times, Barrett says, we treat the Trinity like as if we are pietists, dismissing the Trinity at the start of our pilgrimage because it's pure speculation. That's what I hear from some people on Facebook. You know, that's philosophical speculation that has nothing to do with the gospel or Christian life, whether it be prayer, worship, or the preaching of the good news itself. And he says either road is destructive. The Trinity defines the gospel because the gospel itself is all about the Trinity. The Father has sent his only begotten Son to accomplish our redemption. And the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to apply that redemption within us. There is a Trinitarian descent for the sake of our salvation. A Trinitarian descent, that is to say, the Father, Son, and Spirit all condescend, all cooperate, to save us. Questions, comments, complaints. Okay. Refunds are available. All right. Number eight. Our liturgies should reflect the truth of the triune God. Our liturgies should reflect the truth of the triune God. That seems pretty obviously true. He says, when we gather for worship, our liturgy should lead us in the same direction, empowered by the Spirit to repent and believe in the only begotten Son sent by the Father for us and our salvation. As Paul says, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3.3. Enlightened by the Spirit, says Basil of Caesarea, Excuse me, we look upon the Son, and in him the image, or as in the image of God, behold the Father. If the gospel reveals a Trinitarian descent, our reception of that gospel involves an ascent into the triune life of God. Okay, number nine, true or false? What the Trinity does in time reflects the eternal relations of the Trinity. What the Trinity does in time reflects the eternal relations of the Trinity. That is so tricky. I don't like the guy who wrote that question. I hear, I hear a fru and I hear a tulse. That's entirely valid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there we go. There we go. I'm going to combine your two answers and give you correct Right? <laughs> or fru. The correct answer to number nine is true. Why? Because what the Trinity does in time, in other words, the economic reflects the imminent. 
The economic reflects the imminent. It doesn't tell us exactly who they are, but it reflects, it gives us some truth about. Yes, yes, which is John nailed it. Um, Listen, this gospel tells us something, Barrett says, about who this triune God is in and of himself. In other words, well, then he says, apart from creation and salvation. In other words, it tells us something about the imminent trinity. The deeper we go into the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more we discover that the mission of the Son in salvation history, the fact that he was sent by the Father, reflects his eternal origin, not his submission, because that's his his humanity, but his eternal origin from the Father in eternity. This pattern applies to the whole trinity. The Father sending the Son. The Father and the Son giving... Uh, The spirit, these missions are not arbitrary, but reveal something intrinsic about God's triunity. The father sends his son into the world because it is the son who is eternally begotten or generated by the son apart from the world. Likewise, the father and the son give the spirit who descends on the world because the father and the son eternally breathe out or spirate the spirit apart from the world. The point is the temporal missions, those in time, Reveal the eternal relations. In eternal relations, we just mentioned the Father begets, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit is spirated. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what they, what they do in time reflects their eternal relations, right? So why, why was the Son the one to come? Because he's the eternally begotten one, you know, and um, so it's, it's, it's these relationships that are just reflected in what they do in time. Number 10. Number 10, the whole Bible is built on the truth that God is one, yet three. I hear a lot of truth, and the answer is true. Hey, not every question is tricky. Uh, Barrett says the whole book, or actually this is B.B. Warfield, the whole book, the Bible, is Trinitarian to the core. All its teaching is built on the assumption of the Trinity, and its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. That's probably about the clearest thing B.B. Warfield ever wrote. Okay, number 11, not a true and false, therefore all true and false answers will be wrong. How can Barrett claim that the fullness of the Trinity is revealed after the Old Testament and before the New Testament? Yeah, I I mean, I had to interpret it that way, otherwise I couldn't have uh, formulated the question, actually. So, yeah. So, after the Old Testament is written, but before the New Testament is written, you know, full stop. Well, and, and so, and so I, I did as well, and that's why I formulated the question the way I did, hopefully to shed a little light on that. So every once in a while, the question writer does a good job. Um, if, the Trinity, if the Trinity begins to come into full light with the incarnation of the Son, Christ Jesus, 
then God's full revelation of his triune identity occurs after the writing of the Old Testament, but before the writing of the New Testament. In other words, once Jesus is born, there's some new information. You know, things have crystallized. Well, I shouldn't say new information, but what was kind of obscure, you know, um, there are multiple times where Paul uses the word mystery. And sometimes it's the mystery of how Jews and Gentiles are going to get along, but sometimes it's just the mystery of who the uh, Messiah was going to be and what, what his full nature was going to be. We, we, had, we had shadows of it, but now as he comes to be, we understand uh, much better. So he says, uh, with the incarnation of the Son and the descent of the Spirit, the Trinity is revealed in the salvation of God's people, which then gives the New Testament authors much to say and confess about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their epistles. And I've said this before. It's, it really is interesting when you think about it. When you read, um, particularly in Acts, but also in the epistles, the one thing the apostles, Luke, you know, and the apostles, they never do is what? Say, okay, I know, because a lot of this is written to or is spoken to the Jews. They never say, I know you're familiar with the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But let me tell you how he exists in three persons. They never give this great explication of the Trinity. Well, why not? And I think it's because they all understood that there was one God and so then as they understand, as they start to hear this about the Son is the second person of the Trinity or also God, and the Holy Spirit is God, they don't rebel against it. They don't recoil back from it. It's just kind of like, oh, now I, now I understand it better. Jonathan. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that, I think there were a lot of illusions, things that kind of, you know, they might have, if they if they would have had, you know, the internet and whatnot, people would have been arguing about such things and trying to fully understand them. But once Jesus comes, uh, it becomes a lot more clear. Uh, let's see. Then he says, as Christians in the 21st century, we need this reminder: this side of the cross, with the full canon, the full Bible, and by the way, canon C A N. O-N, only one N there in the, in the middle, although some people think it is a canon. So uh, the canon referring to all those books we call inspired scripture. We flip pages in our Bible and move from Old to New Testament in seconds, but don't forget hundreds of years pass with the flip of a page. What holds these two Testaments together is none other than Christ himself. Mystery in the Old Testament revealed in the New Testament, right? He is the Christological clamp. His coming means not only the fulfillment of all those covenant promises God made in the Old Testament, but the full revelation of God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Through redemption comes revelation, and through revelation comes redemption. Thoughts, questions, concerns? Heresies? Seeing none, we move on. All right, number 12. Yes, sorry.
Right. Good. Good. Yeah. I mean, he says, you know, this is this is at last, and I can go in peace. And all. Yes, he understands. Number twelve. True or false, the New Testament corrects the teaching of the Old Testament so that we can understand the Trinity. Yeah, I gave that one away. I think that's pretty easy. Uh, Rather than thinking, as many skeptics do, that the Trinity is an invention, the New Testament correcting the monotheism of the Old Testament, we should instead think of the Trinity coming into full view, literally, or lit up and radiant, an effulgence of triune revelation right before our eyes. Um, Then again, Warfield, he says, the mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. So, now it is in full view. Yes, John. question is, do I know what they do with the Old Testament or the Old Testament allusions like, uh, you know, uh, let us make man in our image, right? Um, You know, that that plurality, what do they do with it? I I don't know specifically what they do, but I would guess that it's probably uh, they would call it a plural of majesty, you know. Well, they do believe that there's a coming Messiah, but when we went to Israel, this is 20 two plus years ago, almost 23 years ago, they had a rabbi come and talk to us. And uh, what he described, how he described, because they do believe that a Messiah is coming. The way he described the Messiah, I'm listening and I'm going, Antichrist? Antichrist? Antichrist. I mean, it was scary. They, they just, what they're... What they're anticipating coming is the very opposite of the Messiah, and I just was pretty frightening. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, like like a second Moses kind of. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I I think you could say Moses plus David, you know, so. Okay, number 13, what are some of the ways the Old Testament presents the Trinity? What are some of the ways the Old Testament presents the Trinity? Now, for those of you who've been reading Barrett's book, you've memorized this list. Go ahead, Brian. Brian hasn't, hasn't. There's a smart guy. Isaiah 48:16, which Brian also has memorized. Go ahead. And his spirit, right? And when he says he sent me, if you read the the verse in context, it's clearly the pre-incarnate Christ. And how do you remember Isaiah 48:16, Brian? That's not right. Yes, 16 times 3 is 48. That's how I always remember it. You know, just, just these, these little things, you know, just kind of help us, right? Um, okay, let me just give you what Barrett says, and then we'll, we'll close. Uh, 
Here are some of the ways the Old Testament presents the Trinity. Distinction between names Elohim and Yahweh. Plural form of Elohim. And by the way, I think he says this is from Bob Inc. I, I didn't give the uh, plural form Elohim. Whenever, whenever there's a word like even, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, for? Oh, seraphim. You know, we all always say seraphim, but it's really seraphim. And what does it mean? Seraphim means more than one. Uh, the angel of the Lord. Number four, wisdom personified in Job 28, 12 to 27, and also Proverbs 8. Uh, number five, word of God also personified, ascribed divine attributes. Number six, spirit of God. Number seven, God speaks of himself in the plural. Number eight, multiple divine persons named. And number nine, three persons named. So he gives all these, and we don't have... I mean, I didn't go to Bobbing to rip off his notes, so, um, but I, I think he has a longer list than that. Okay, thoughts or yes, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, and that's and that's right. You know, I mean, so much tradition, and no, we're not going to sing tradition, but uh, so 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 much tradition that it you know getting back to the original meaning of the Bible isn't all that important to them um, because they've got hundreds and thousands of years of teaching, and that's all they have. So, okay, with that, we need to close. Time's up. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this um, opportunity again to just remind ourselves of who you are, what you've done, how what you've done even reflects who you are and your uh, eternal origins in terms of eternal relations, uh, in terms of uh, the Father begetting, the Son being eternally begotten, and the Son being, or the Spirit being eternally spirated. Lord, help us to, to grapple with these things and to better understand uh, you that we might better worship you. Father, we pray for our worship service and for Pastor Mike. In Jesus' name, amen.